Hello, thanks for listening to this latest podcast from the University of Brighton as we chat to staff and students from across the university. This week, Edwin Gilson spoke to Dr. Matt Adams, who discusses the role of social sciences at a time of environmental crisis, the strengths of the university's psychology department, and why he's been posting photos of sheep on Twitter recently. We began by talking about Matt's background. I graduated in communication studies in the early 90s and then I travelled and eventually undertook a PhD at Nottingham Trent, critically examining the meaning of social change for psychic life and the experience of self. This was part-time and self-funded, so I did all sorts of jobs to keep me afloat at various points. Removal man, hospital porter, film props assistant and perhaps best of all, administrator for a touring experimental theatre troupe. And I also started teaching in the later stages. I did various postdoc research and teaching jobs after that before coming to Brighton as a psychology lecturer about 15 years ago. Can you think back even further beyond that then to when you realised that you first had an interest in psychology? It's not perhaps the kind of subject you'd expect to learn at high school, say. So when did you first become interested in it? Yes, actually, actually that desire was sparked most clearly by an A-level in sociology. Psychology wasn't available then as a subject. So I had an interesting route into psychology. It was only one strand of my undergraduate degree as well, and we were taught a unique syllabus focused on maverick, feminist, critical and outsider psychology in conjunction with sociology, cultural studies, critical theory. So I studied people like um, Sigmund Freud, Carl Rogers, alongside Jean-Paul Sartre, Bourdieu, Herbert Marcuse, Michel Foucault, Melanie Klein, Simone de Beauvoir, all mixed up alongside my own reading. What they had in common, looking back, was a focus on how subjective life and social forces interact. And your, your early research obviously focused on identity and social psychology predominantly, and more recently you've moved towards more environmental matters. Um, we'll move on to that environmental-based work in a minute, but I wonder if you could please summarise, if you can, the focus of your first book, uh, Self and Social Change, which was published in 2007. Yeah. So broadly speaking, the book is the story of the psychology of the self in a world that's changing and increasingly global. I asked what the nature of the self is that lives in a global world of increasingly plural positions. Basically, I set out to navigate a path between more voluntarist accounts of social change, we're all free to be who we want to be, and determinist accounts, we're all self-obsessed or we're all doomed. In particular, I wanted to be able to acknowledge change and account for the ongoing role of power, inequality and injustice in impacting on people's sense of self, without resorting to a problematic and patronising deficit model. I mean, I'm not sure I managed it, but that was the intention. <laughs> well, talking of kind of researching the self in a, in a world that's always changing, I mean, would you say you were still effectively researching social change? It's just that now it comes through more through the filter of the environmental crisis and, and kind of our attitudes towards nature. Absolutely. Dead right. I can see no social change more profound than the ecological crisis. In fact, the climate crisis is a social crisis in that it has been caused by social systems and practices and will only be overcome by collective and social change. And it reaches into the heart of psychology, what it means to exist, to be a human on a planetary scale, arguably provokes a fundamental existential crisis. And, of course, it's psychology in terms of how we deal with the guilt, anxiety, fear, responsibility, work with others, etc., that the climate crisis provokes. Sure, and we'll get more into the nitty-gritty of that um, in a minute, but 
Was that move towards the psychology of, of environmental change and I guess the anxieties around that, was that a, a conscious one or were you just moving with the, the dominant kind of overriding anxiety of our age, I suppose? It was actually a very conscious move. At the time, I was becoming increasingly specialised in one or two aspects of the study of self and social change. As we're often encouraged to do as academics, kind of create a niche, become experts in increasingly narrow fields. But in doing so, I felt like I was losing something, a sense of connection between academic work and wider social problems, which was vital for me. And at the same time, the ecological crisis was increasingly troubling me, personally. And I began to notice the myriad ways in which I and others avoided thinking and talking about it. I just thought I had to start addressing it as an issue for psychology and the social sciences rather than ignoring it. Well, yeah, coming around to that, I mean, what do you think, it's a big question, but what do you think fundamentally the role of, of psychology and perhaps the social sciences in general is at a time of, of environmental crisis? I think I'd, in answering that question, I'd start by not overstating the importance of psychology or the social sciences, but alongside the arts, journalism, fiction, science, it can help contribute to a culture that more openly discloses and explores the nature of that crisis, what it means to us and how we might begin to meaningfully address it, individually, for psychology, and collectively. It can highlight existing and new ways of engaging with each other too, more positively and constructively, including non-human others and the natural world that are more caring and responsible. Going back a few years, in the blurb of your most recent book, um, which is called Ecological Crisis, Sustainability and the Psychosocial Subject Beyond Behaviour Change... Yeah, a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> You said, or you wrote in the blurb, um, the challenges posted by the reality of human-caused environmental problems are unprecedented. Understanding how we respond to knowledge of these problems is vital if we are to have a hope of meeting this challenge. And just picking up on that word hope, I suppose, I mean, that was a few years ago now. How hopeful are you feeling now? Am I hopeful? Yes, always. I cling to Italian philosopher Antonio Gramsci's succinct, succinct edict. He wrote this in a letter from prison. Pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. And, relatedly, whilst if you're not angry, you're not paying attention, that anger must be translated into something more positive and constructive for me. And the amount of energy, the attempts to grapple and engage with the issues, is growing all the time. And I have to believe that this is all contributing to the possibility of change. The American author, Rebecca Solnit, writes brilliantly on the nuances of hope. And she reminds us that great public moments protests, marches, uprising, ushering in genuine change are not the planting, but the harvest of a change in public imagination. And I hang on to that. Well, when you talk about that public imagination, it's obviously a difficult thing, as you kind of mentioned earlier, for the public in general to get their head around thinking in a kind of in geologic time almost and everything. Are you, are you hopeful that, that we can achieve that at some point as well and that we can think kind of almost outside of ourselves and, and think in a more planetary way, I suppose? I think it could happen. Whether there are signs at the moment that it could happen, I'm ambivalent about. There is protests, there are movements, there are attempts. I think what I find most hopeful probably is the fact that science and protest uh, knowledge are on the same page often, and that doesn't always happen in history, but there's a great deal of science behind the reality of climate change, so it's possible. Do you see that um, almost interdisciplinary approach reflected on, in an academic level then, even at the university with different departments working together to kind of try and achieve not answers as such, but a greater understanding of this crisis? 
I see lots more papers calling for that kind of dialogue. I'm still not convinced that that dialogue is happening as yet. Certainly in terms of my individual experience with different academics, it's starting to happen. But whether it's happening on the scale necessary to address this as an interdisciplinary problem, I'm still not convinced. Does contemplating you know, impending environmental breakdown on a daily basis, given that you're so much ingrained in it now, does that ever get you down at all? That's a good question. Yes, it can often feel frightening and lonely because it seems like, or it can seem like, everybody is going about their business regardless. So why am I so worried? But I also recognise that I'm in an extremely privileged position compared to many people on the planet, contemplating breakdown from a position of relative safety and security. I'm fortunate. I don't forget that. And I'm also lucky to have a job where I can make connections with others and be part of networks doing similar work and do start to feel like I'm part of a wider community. And that helps you to feel a bit more reassured, does it, I suppose? Exactly, yeah. Okay. Sure, and um, on that note, I suppose, how... Again, this is another big question, but I suppose they're all big questions at this point. How can we continue to, to find value and, and meaning, I suppose, in the small things in our lives, in the context of this um, environmental catastrophe, do you think? Now, that's a great question. I think I'd start by saying the catastrophe is already underway for many across the globe. In that sense, it's experienced slowly. The world isn't going to end tomorrow. The environmental crisis is an opportunity, in a way, to consider, individually and collectively, what we do value and find meaning in, and what we want to hang on to in an imagined future. What will that future look like? What must we let go? So those small things you mention are actually essential and ought to be part of those conversations and that imagination. And I mean, this term Anthropocene has come into the public mm. imagination a bit more. It seems like it's increasingly coming into it. Um, obviously, you've done a lot of work on it, but you also wrote an article for the conversation in which you dismissed the term. Mm. Um, and just to be clear, obviously, the Anthropocene is the proposed name for the geologic epoch that, that denotes the impacts humans have had on the Earth. Um, could you briefly explain why in that article you dismissed the term? Mm. So you caught me out for being contradictory. <laughs> no, it was meant to be provocative. I do actually use the term a lot of shorthand, the idea that one species, Anthropos, is changing the planet for the first time in its history, helps convey the scale and gravity of the impact of human activity I do. However, it can also exaggerate our importance as a species, especially in the context of deep time, the Earth's long history. Part of the wider problem of the environmental crisis, I think, which has a clear psychological dimension, is the assumption that humans are somehow superior to and outside of nature. The idea of the Anthropocene can feed into that. Addressing the environmental crisis isn't about saving the planet. In the long term of deep time, it will live on without humans or with humans finding a more sustainable, i.e. responsible to other forms of life, ecological niche. So it's worth being aware of the potential hubris and arrogance in advancing the Anthropocene as an idea. Well, that's an interesting idea, and it leads to the question of the idea of why do we talk about it in terms of saving the planet as opposed to saving I know there is talk about you know saving the sixth extinction and everything else but why do we say save the planet when as you say the planet will survive and go on without us whether we're there or not why do we use that phrasing do you think I think it's a reflection of our culture and without putting too strong an emphasis on it it's a culture that we could call uh, human exceptionalist or anthropocentric and that we do focus on humans as the central species and in doing so, we exclude more or less all of the 
forms of life as external to the human. So I think it, it, it's become naturalised that we talk of humans and the environment as separate. So we talk about saving the environment or saving the planet without stopping to articulate or try and make sense of our entanglement with all other forms of life on this and in this planet. Well, yeah, talking about that, um, people might have seen photos of sheep on your Twitter account recently. I presume this is part of your kind of ongoing work about our relationship with, with the natural world in some way. Can you explain what that's about? Huh. Well spotted, yes, sheep. Um, well, earlier you mentioned how we can continue to value and find meaning in the small things in our lives in the context of uh, environmental catastrophe. And one of those small things that's important to me is a connection to nature, something that is commonly claimed we've lost or losing. And something also that is claimed is contributing to our inadequate response to that crisis so far. It's harder to value what we have no connection with. So a big part of my research, my empirical research, and my sense of hope, actually, is working with individuals and groups who are seeking a reconnection to nature in one form or another. And a great example of that is this really popular volunteer shepherding scheme in Brighton and Hove. Local councils, and Brighton and Hove have been at the forefront of this, are increasingly using sheep and other animals to graze land on the urban fringes rather than machinery as a way of encouraging more biodiverse habitats, homes for more varied flora and fauna. It's called conservation grazing. And they rely on volunteers, lookerers they're called locally, to help look after the sheep. And the scheme has proved exceptionally popular as a waiting list. So working with colleagues at the University of Brighton, James Ormrod, and a student researcher, Sarah Smith, over the last two summers we've been interviewing lookerers whilst they undertake a shift, finding out what they get out of it, how they engage with the sheep, the landscape, what motivates them to volunteer. And it's been fascinating so far. We're writing it up at the moment. And it's also a great excuse to explore the green edges of the city, out in the field in both senses. And what do your your takeaways from that tell you then predominantly if you were to sum up what the lookerers were telling you about the value of going out and doing that work what would you say i'd be hes- i'd hesitate for now at the moment because we haven't analyzed the data fully but what i see there is uh, a really interesting connection to the animals to the sheep uh, a sense of care and duty and responsibility and also a sense of a reconnection to nature not just the sheep but the natural landscape so a noticing, a greater noticing of the places in which people live and a real cherishing of that. But also lots of novel and complex social relations, so with dog walkers, members of the public, other species that appear on the land as well, um, that we're trying to make sense of. And I presume that you do buy into that idea then that you, you talked about earlier, which is that a greater connection to the natural world can help us um, come to terms with thinking outside of ourselves as humans, I suppose. I think it's complex, Culture gets in the way and mediates that relationship, but basically, yes, I do. I think there is a profound potential power in experiences in nature. Okay, and maybe we'll come on to that a bit later when you talk about your favourite places in Sussex. Okay. But <laughs> um, So on to teaching now and your teaching um, methods. Um, you say that you like to teach psychology as a subject that has direct personal relevance to your students. Um, how do you go about making it relevant to each student with their unique backgrounds and experience? That sounds like quite a, quite a challenge, I suppose. It is quite a challenge, but it mainly occurs for me through conversation and dialogue. That's when you get to know genuinely where a student's coming from. So I ask students about their own experience, and I try to make them feel that their own background and perspective is important. Psychology is not an abstract science. When it comes to psychology, there's no better raw material than people's own experiences. 
And when you say it's not an abstract science, is that a common misconception, do you think? Or? Well, the history of psychology is a history of a kind of battle between its attempts to be recognised as a science and others recognising it as something more artistic or nuanced. So, yeah, that is a common misconception that it is somehow white coats scientific endeavour and why I would I would not dismiss the idea of it being a science humans studying humans is always going to be a complex affair mm. so do you think students sometimes come into the course with that misconception then and then you try and put them straight I suppose with your teaching method <laughs> um, well they undertake um, research methods and that can feel more scientific I suppose but yeah what we certainly do is try and encourage a broad understanding of psychology that's directly relevant to people's lives so that can be scientific in that sense, but it can also be um, it can also be a different kind of endeavour, political, historical, um, sociological sometimes. So in their work, would they then be encouraged to bring in incidents and anecdotes and memories from their own their own lives, or does it not quite go that far? It does go that far, absolutely, yeah. So that's what we would encourage. And that can be difficult when we're teaching things like mental health and distress, for example, so we have to have boundaries and we have to be careful. But yeah, it's absolutely the case that people's own experiences are directly relevant to the subjects that you're studying in psychology. Of course. Okay, and you might have kind of discussed this already, but um, what's the most rewarding aspect of teaching in your view? Well, it builds on what I've said, but it's more group teaching because that's where conversation and dialogue can happen. The best learning for me is where students become comfortable enough to consider difficult questions together, equipped, of course, with what they're learning through reading and engagement with ideas. And for me also, when teaching subjects they're unlikely to have come across before, I find that rewarding, but they connect to their wider experience. And I love it when students engage with these kinds of topics and a light goes on. Eco-psychology and the psychology of human-animal relations are recent examples that I've been involved in. Yeah, I was going to ask a bit about that. Is the, the work that you mentioned earlier about um, the environment, is that being worked into the curriculum or do you have more plans for that? Absolutely, it's worked into the curriculum. So if we're talking about introduction to psychology now, then our relationship between humans and nature is now an introductory topic. We've introduced it on our degrees. Second year in social psychology, about how we respond to climate change uh, in terms of group norms might appear there. But I also do run a specialist module in the final year that engages with these kinds of issues in more depth. And what do you think the psychology department at the university does best then? We do lots of things really well, but I think we are brilliant, my colleagues are brilliant, at encouraging our psychologists, our budding psychologists, to think critically and compassionately about the world around them. To use psychology as a way of offering multiple, often novel perspectives on the problems we face in the world as individuals. So we're now going to move on to some quick-fire personal questions that we ask all of our interview subjects. Um, so to start off, what is your favourite place in Sussex? That's tough because there are so many. Right now I'd go for Hollingbury Hillfort. It's in the middle of a public golf course. It's off the Ditchling Road. But it's an ancient spot and I think it's a bit special. And can you describe your perfect weekend? Probably a bike ride with my partner and kids between Brighton Marina and Salt Dean with a cafe built in. Maybe then meet up with friends on the beach for a quick dip, dog walk up to the aforementioned hill fort. If I could squeeze it in a game of tennis somewhere along the way, and maybe an hour or two with friends in a pub somewhere like the Basket Makers. That does sound good. Yeah. So, what are you um, currently reading, watching, or listening to? You can pick all three of these, or just or just one if you want. Well, I love all three of those things. So, I love new music. I can't stop listening to new music, especially 
New Zealand singer-songwriter at the moment, Aldous Harding. She's fantastic, eccentric. I love New Brighton band, Penelope Isles. Their first album, Until the Tide Creeps In, is wonderful. In terms of reading, I'm reading the novel Lanny by Max Porter, which is a very strange, wonderful tale of an English village. Well, in terms of watching, I've just finished watching Stranger Things Series 3. It's great to have something to watch with my kids, and we love it. Who are your five fantasy dinner guests, alive or dead? Well, that's a tough one. I mean, I'm kind of tempted to um, go for contemporary political heroes like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Caroline Lucas or Jess Phillips. But let's get the Beatles back together for one last time and maybe we'll offer up the other seat in some kind of global lottery. Thanks to Matt for his time. You can find out more about his work by clicking or tapping the link in the podcast description. That's about it for this week's podcast, but we'll be back next week when we'll be speaking to Dr. Dario Linares, a podcaster himself from the School of Media. If you're not already, you can like and subscribe to this podcast. Just search University of Brighton. We're available on most podcast apps, including Spotify and iTunes. Thanks for listening.